Welcome. You're listening to the Best Tech Practices for Small Organizations podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Wells, and this podcast is presented by NW Techs and is designed to educate small and medium-sized organizations on the best practices for managing their IT. We cover topics ranging from cybersecurity to business communication to file storage to working remotely. In this episode, we highlight a panel discussion we did in February with five law firm leaders from around the country discussing topics ranging from cybersecurity, working remotely, and ensuring data security compliance. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. We have a panel of legal, cybersecurity, and IT experts from across the country joining in today. So thank you all for being here and taking the time to share with our audience around your expertise, your background when it comes to technology, running law firms, being involved uh, in the legal space, and then also uh, your knowledge with combating cybersecurity and IT issues. Today, we have a full agenda, so we're about to jump right into the questions. Today will be a roundtable discussion where we have a handful of questions that we will be talking about and discussing and diving deep into around cybersecurity, IT, working remotely, and so on. Before we jump in, I want to do a couple introductions and some housekeeping. This event will be recorded. So if you're not able to attend the whole event or if you'd like to rewatch it or share it with them, uh, your team, feel free to, uh, you'll be getting an email here in the next um, uh, day or two with a link to the recording. If you also have questions for the panelists um, or for us, please submit them in the Q&A button. You'll see that right in kind of the middle of your screen towards the bottom. And you can submit a Q&A question, or if you just like to submit a general topic to the audience, you can also submit it through the chat and make sure that goes to either the panelist or to everyone, depending on who you want to see that question. Well, before we jump in, I would like to make a couple introductions. First, my name is Taylor Wells. I'm the Director of Marketing for NW Techs. We're a IT provider that helps small organizations manage their entire infrastructure. So from managed IT to cybersecurity to phone systems, we're involved in all of our clients' technology and helping them uh, utilize technology, reduce risk, and ultimately increase productivity. Um, I'm also joined by Sam Tibidian from Century Park Law Group. Sam co-founded Century Park Law Group in 2013. The firm is dedicated to re representing plaintiffs in personal injury matters. Sam has also utilized his MBA to manage Century Park Law Group and also obtain excellent results from clients while finding new and inno innovative ways to use cutting-edge technology in his firm. Thanks for being here, Sam. We also have Lindsay Nickel. Lindsay Nickel is a partner in the Dallas office of Lewis Brisbois and is a vice chair of the data privacy and cybersecurity practice. She has extensive experience managing responses to data security instances and helping clients navigate the complex process of responding to loss, theft, and compromise of protective information. Thanks for being here, Lindsay. We also have Joe Martinez. Joe is a Chief Information Assurance Officer. Uh, Joe is a veteran of the United States Army. He's conducted numerous joint and national level investigations and operations and deployed to conduct computer forensics and incident response all across the world. Mr. Martinez joined the team at the law firm of Paul Nero and Platt provide clients with technical guidance and counsel in areas of information governance, data assurance, corporate and government compliance, and cybersecurity. Thanks, Joe, for being here. We also have Natalie Ramin. She is a partner at Levin Ginsburg. Natalie is the chair of the firm's privacy and data security practice group, where she leverages her knowledge of business and privacy to assist clients in identifying and mitigating areas of corporate risk through regulatory compliance and corporate governance at all levels of the organization. Thanks, Natalie, for being here. And last but not least, we have Christy Cook, who's a managing and founding partner at 
Mode Law Firm. Christy founded her firm, which is a bi-coastal uh, law firm, serves nonprofit and for-profit businesses in North Carolina and Oregon with a passion and dedication. As a mission-oriented person, nothing fulfills Christy more than providing legal structure for purpose-driven industries, no matter the size. So fantastic. Thank you all for being here. Really, the, the common theme between all of the panelists today are, um, number one, they've been either working a law firm or they own a law firm or their law firm focuses in cybersecurity or IT and helping organizations mitigate those risks. So we have a very unique people from all uh, ends of the spectrum when it comes to law firms and what you guys specialize in and then also your area of expertise, which will be a great opportunity for a rich discussion as we go through some of these questions. So fantastic. Let's jump it off uh, into the first question. What was one of the greatest challenges with working remotely and how you overcame it? Joe, can you jump on that question for us, please? Sure, absolutely. And uh, hello to all the uh, attendees and panelists. It's great to be with all of you. So uh, for this question, I would say for our organization, the shift was was fairly easy um, because we had already been in the cloud. We already had uh, security practices and policies around cloud infrastructure and cloud working. So it made the transition to moving that out of the office and into the home, you know, a little bit easier. So for folks that were not familiar with teleworking or working remotely, um, which in our organization was very small, actually, um, there wasn't that much of a, you know, a shift in, in how to work and how to conduct day-to-day -day business. But um, for a lot of our customers, you know, they had a much more difficult time transitioning, especially those that were not telework friendly or didn't have policies and security controls in place to handle their organization's data outside of their own environment. So, you know, it really ran the gamut on how successful they were transitioning post a, a pandemic. That's awesome, Joe. Thanks for, for sharing that. I think a key takeaway I heard from you was being compliant or having a cloud compliance in place. I think a lot of times small businesses think that just because it's in the cloud means it's number one compliant with whatever regulatory organization or third party that you're trying to follow their compliance or data security. Yeah. So I think that's a big area where it's like, oh, it's in the cloud. So it's safe and secure and compliant. Uh, well, that, that's not always true. You need to go through kind of a second process to ensure that if you're in the cloud and work ready to work remotely, that you're also, your cloud storage is compliant. Natalie, would you mind pitching in your, your thoughts on the question of working remotely and uh, what was kind of one of the biggest challenges you've, you've, you've experienced or your clients have experienced and, and how did you mitigate that? Sure, Taylor. Thank you. And thank you for having me and, and hi to all of our participants and thanks for joining us. So um, one of the most biggest things, we were pretty set up with our attorneys to work from home. I think the more of the setup happened with respect to staff. That was done fairly easily. But I think one of the biggest challenges is really that there's no casual conversations, be it work-related or otherwise, mm -hmm. that you would have normally in the office. Our uh, law firm in particular is very collaborative. We have a very open-door type policy. I think the work is better quality in some ways because we really do sort of work together and bounce off each other. And this happens a lot during the day. And so um, I think that the remote thing was more difficult because you don't want to interrupt someone's work, but at the same time, you're missing that ease of efficiency of conversation as well. So it's that balanced and you can uh, employ certain technologies like Slack or whatever, where you now have a message capability, but that's got to be balanced against how many interruptions do you want during the day? Because as all lawyers know, we're having this eternal struggle for uninterrupted work time as well. So I think that's been a balance that we've seen over this past year. 
Would you mind speaking to, I know you mentioned the team collaboration platforms like Slack or Microsoft Teams. Any like takeaways of like, oh, I really love this tool or that tool. Any one of those collaboration tools have you found uh, superior, maybe even from a compliance standpoint? Just, yeah, just your takeaway from, from those know, team collaboration our tools. Clients, our clients use these more really than we do. And so okay. I've seen this more from their perspective. I've heard good things about Slack in terms of um, ease of use, efficiency, this type of thing. Maybe one of the other panelists can add to that. Sure. Great. Okay. Thanks, Natalie. Mm -hmm. Awesome. How about Christy Cook? Uh, would you mind jumping in on kind of issues with working remotely and how are your, you and your staff were able to, to overcome those issues? So actually my firm has always been a virtual practice. And so I'm going to stop my videos speaking of technology issues. Um, but yeah, my firm has always been a virtual practice. I serve clients in Oregon and North Carolina. And so that means that we were sort of on the Zoom bandwagon before COVID hit. So so for us, we had a lot of these protections in place and having been someone who's really focused on cybersecurity, one key component of my firm was to make sure that every tool that we used really met our ethical obligations to our clients. So for example, that means making sure that the software includes multi-factor authentication, that there's great encryption involved, you know, that you're able to limit access to the minimum necessary with the folks who need to share documents. And so I know a big trend right now, particularly particularly for solo attorneys, is to kind of move away from some of the traditional law practice management software because some of it feels a little outdated. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks are sort of venturing into new softwares like the Dubsados of the world and other sort of client-centered management solutions that non-lawyers are using and non-folks uh, you know, who don't have maybe as much sensitive information as lawyers and CPAs and so forth have. And so one thing that I'm always making sure that we're stressing is to ensure that when you are using those solutions, you are paying a lot of attention as attorneys, as folks with sensitive information to the security features that are involved. And so in starting a virtual practice and maintaining one, that is a huge component of what we stress and now we're able to teach to our clients. Thanks, Chris. See, that's, that's super helpful. Does anybody else want to elaborate on, and we've seen this as a trend as well, people moving away from the large practice management softwares and law firms just because uh, cost, number one, is kind of the, the large cost and the value they get out of it. As far as integration, for example, we see a lot of people moving away from practice management and just managing their files and, and whatnot in Microsoft 365. Does anybody else want to jump on that question or that idea of moving away from practice management software? Actually, I can comment on that. We're we're doing the exact opposite within our office. Thanks, Sam. Yes. Uh, we, we have this new software program called FileBind, which is a cloud-based case management program. And everything is literally in the cloud. You can go on any device you have, whether it's your phone, your laptop, or your desktop computer. Um, and we're actually in the process of integrating all our files onto that cloud-based system. Um, it's a pretty secure system. Everything is encrypted, and it gives you access everywhere. Um, the interesting thing about these new systems are is they have a lot of technology built behind it. For example, um, it has OCR built in. So you can search anywhere within the case management software, find any document you want. Or they have PDF editing built into the software program. So as long as you hop onto a web, web browser, you can take any document, change it around, and if you need to send it out, you can fax it right to the software program. You can uh, send it to, for signature right through the program. So. It really consolidates everything and makes it more simple. And having being web-based, you can access it from any, any device that you have available to. 
Super cool. Thanks for sharing, Sam. And since we're on you, do you have any extra thoughts as far as kind of your firm mitigating remote issues and any like remote could be technology related, could be just collaborating, any thoughts on things you learned in the past year from working remotely more? A couple of things I learned first is, you know, you have to invest in equipment. Equipment's one of the most important things for people working remotely. Our firm was paperless and digital from day one, but most people worked in the office. So to get people to all of a sudden within a couple of days say, all right, go home and get working. It's not easy because at the office, they have a nice computer set up, two monitors, high-speed internet and things to that effect. So we literally have to, you know, overnight go purchase 20 or 30 different laptops, distribute to everyone, put all the software on there, um, and then be mindful of security issues that we have. For example, people are going to go home and be on their Wi-Fi. That's not necessarily secure. So what we did is we, we purchased computers that had LTE built in, and we got LTE plans for every single one of the computers. So we're... We're confident knowing that the lines that our staff are using are secure because it's not going on their Wi-Fi. Moreover, we're not reliant on their Wi-Fi system to make sure that we have good connections and they have the right uh, speeds that they need. They have LTE. Um, obviously, there are some issues here and there because not everyone has the best coverage, but for the most part, it turned out to work pretty well. That's awesome, Sam. Thanks for elaborating on on uh, yeah working from home and. And uh, one thing I heard from you mentioning was not uh, uh, making sure your employees and your team is using business class and business owned equipment. A lot of times what we see with our clients, especially with the pandemic, was uh, the clients that weren't set up for working remotely and, and weren't proactive um, had the problem of people using personal equipment at home. Um, and not only does that make it just a dicey setup of just... Um, you have maybe not encrypted hardware and and whatnot, but supporting it is also a lot more challenging. And then you obviously mentioned all the issues of security and compliance and using personal equipment. And I think it's it's best practice no matter the size of your organization, whether you're a smaller firm with just a few people or, or, or thousands of employees, using business owned equipment is a, is a must. And, uh, and then if they have a personal laptop that's used for personal uses, not business uh, related things. And that way you have a, a clear delineation between uh, what things are supported, what things have uh, security and compliance built in. Fantastic. Lindsay, would you mind just elaborating on what you've seen as far as working remotely, uh, best practices, and then also just uh, things we've learned, some challenges that you've seen your, your organization or your clients over. Sure. Uh, I'll echo what Natalie mentioned, that one of the challenges, a lot of law firms, are in, ours included, uh, we had a number of our attorneys already set up to work remotely, whether they occasionally worked at home or were set up to be able to work while traveling. It was quite a bit of a rush to get support staff set up. And that proved to be a bit of a challenge, not just from a software issue, but most most from the hardware issue. Because I think most of us remember when, when the pandemic shutdown happened, there was kind of a rush on laptops and, and, and monitors and devices just to people could get set up. You know, one of the things about having an environment that's set up around either cloud-based or VPN access means you don't quite have some of the concerns about connections, but you also have to make sure that you're training people. It works very, very differently at home than it does in the office when you think about what you're training people to think about when it comes to what they're clicking on, on website, what they're visiting, how that might interface with the business operations. But when you send everybody home, training, training measures take, become secondary. It's a lot harder to gather everyone together in a conference room. The other challenge, and I, and I just say this because I think it's funny, even, even a year out from this whole thing, we're still seeing the glitches in the virtual platforms. 
So whether you're Zoom or WebEx or Teams or any of those other things, we're trying to collaborate. Like Natalie mentioned, we want to collaborate and technology falls short sometimes. Um, so we're all having to get really creative about how do we connect with the people we work with? How do we inspire one another to practice law effectively? Um, and, and how do we keep people connected when we're, when we're not face-to-face? I think that's been a really, cha- a really big challenge for a lot of practices just because we're missing that personal touch. Most definitely. And I think uh, ultimately nothing will change being in person. And all these tools are, are just uh, an attempt to, uh, to re- recreate what we have in person and uh, yeah, trying to figure out how to do that. It's a whole new world. Um, that's great. Thanks for sharing, Lindsay. Awesome. Let's move uh, on to a ne- the next question here. Uh, the question is really around what are we excited about uh, around cloud, uh, being cloud-based and working remotely? So kind of futuristic, you're looking at a year down the road or a couple years down the road, or even now, um, what, what do we see as kind of like the silver lining? Is it a combination of a hybrid work environment where we have stuff stored locally, stuff stored in the cloud? And then really, yeah, what are the advantages are we going to see of, of things either going to a hybrid environment or things um, staying completely virtual? Yeah, what are, I'd love to hear everyone's takeaways on what are we excited about? What do you see as kind of a perfect environment, really, a perfect setup, whether it's a hybrid infrastructure or being completely virtual. So yeah, Joe, let's let's start with you. What, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, let me start by saying I am definitely a cloud proponent. Um, I'm not I'm not against cloud at all, but um, I think that uh, you know something like this pandemic has taught us is that to work and and sustain yourself in a cloud environment, you have to have integrations that actually work. And and Sam touched on this a little bit, you know, having a software platform that gives you the ability to do multiple different types of tasks within a single umbrella is is absolutely essential. And you're starting to see that with a lot of the vendors, Um, whether you're in an Office 365, I'm sorry, Microsoft 365 environment, or you're in a Google workspace environment, the need to be able to do things within that single ecosystem is really important. So a lot of your customers and my customers that have things like uh, Microsoft 365, but then they also have um, DocuSign or they also have a collaboration tool like Slack. These things need to be able to talk to each other and they can't be disparate. So I think the pandemic has actually helped software companies make that move towards being more integrated with one another, but that does come at a cost, right? Because instead of buying one product, you're buying five products now to support your environment. So um, it's, a, it's a give and take relationship, but to answer your your initial question, I'm most excited about moving more towards into a cloud that has a lot more integrations than it does today. Um, but I think to to your point, I think we'll see more data cloud versus, you know, a combination of hybrid and you know, local and cloud. Um, data will move more and more into the cloud as the cloud becomes more accessible to people. Cool, Joe. I love that. Yeah, I think uh, two takeaways I heard there was integrations. Um, and then obviously, we've had a, a, a crazy acceleration of of, uh, of our of the technological evolution, if you would. Uh, Microsoft came out and said, within the first two months of the pandemic, they had two years of growth on their on their Teams platforms and other platforms. And then they also came out and said, Within the, the 2020 year, there was upwards of 10 years of growth when it comes to utilizing cloud tools. Um, and so a tremendous amount of growth and pushing people into the cloud, which uh, gives you the ability to have uh, even more points of data. But to your point, it's even more tools, right? So how do we make sure those tools work together? Because it's pretty powerful. The amount of integrations, the amount of things you can do. Um, and the amount of data you can either track, whether it's from a marketing perspective, whether it's from a client 
management perspective, the whole gambit. Um, you have all the data, but it's making sure you connect the dots um, and obviously having a, an IT provider, an IT team that can help you do that. Super important. Awesome. Christy, do you have any thoughts on uh, what are you excited about as far as uh, the future? Obviously, you're already in the cloud. Your organization has been in the clouds, but just for working remotely and what do you see as a kind of a perfect a perfect world when it comes to working remotely in the virtual world? You know, I think that for me, um, since I started a virtual practice, I'm really excited about the fact that it feels like finally the practice of law is modernizing. Um, it's always sort of felt to me like it was a bit behind and um, it feels like it's been forced to sort of have to, you know, meet modern demands, which I think is really exciting. Obviously, that means that staff need to be trained, but, you know, we're in a time right now where we have five generations in the workforce, which is the most we've ever had. And so I think long term, this is going to be a great way to help touch on all those generations and get them working. You know, if we do develop some sort of hybrid model, we'll allow, you know, folks to work where they're comfortable and where they feel they can be most productive. Um, I think that it's a great way, uh, you know, as long as you kind of learn time management skills and maybe we need to focus on that more as business leaders, but it's a great way to really have actually work-life balance and, you know, job, higher job satisfaction, especially in the practice of law where there tends to be a lot of burnout as there are in many other um, professions similar to this. And so I really think that this sort of force into moving and embracing technology is gonna have some really long-term value uh, across generations in the practice of law and other um, sort of formal and traditional, um, somewhat stuffy uh, professions. <laughs> Great, Christy. Thanks for sharing. I love uh, your thoughts on just the employee's health and the people's health and, and having work-life balance. And yeah, I think uh, the greatest, the coolest part about technology from my perspective is it's very focused on outcomes. Ultimately, working in an office is, or, you know, punching in or, or putting in your nine to five, um, that doesn't really say anything about what you're actually doing and creating outcomes for your clients, for your team, for your customers and so on. And so, I love that focus of, hey, how do we work better ultimately, right? Work smarter and then uh, be, be healthier through it. And then ultimately focus more on, hey, how are we actually helping people? How are we serving clients versus uh, just doing business as we've always done it? And uh, so that's super great. Let's let Lindsay, do you have any thoughts on the future and what are you excited about? So I agree with Christy's take on this. I think one of the things that happened um, with the great shift to work at home is it, it was a grand experiment that no one was willing to try until it was absolutely necessary. And when it became absolutely necessary, particularly in the practice of law, I think we've found that a lot of law firms and lawyers are surprised at the amount of productivity that you can get out of people when they work from home. Um, and that's true of support staff. I know I have run into a few folks in the, my history of practice that have been very concerned about letting support staff work from home. They you know not being able to monitor. And I think what they're finding is when you give people flexibility in most situations, not all, but in a lot of those situations, what you find is increased productivity and the product that's being delivered to the client is faster, more efficient, better. And that work-life balance works across everybody in the office. You know, we've, we've identified some folks in our firm that don't want to work at home. Um, they've insisted on being in the office, and that's certainly a personality that's not going to go away. Um, but I know for me personally, I've worked from home, at least in some way, shape, or form, 
probably for about, I'd say 10 or 12 years now. And, um, you know, in the office sometimes, at home other times. And so the advancements, advancements in technology are just making that better and more efficient. So when you think about cloud-based solutions or remote working solutions, um, what that's doing is giving us the opportunity to deliver better services for our client from multiple for our clients from multiple places. You know, the double-edged sword of that is I think some of us have experienced the erosion of boundaries just a little bit. Um, and so if we continue this type of virtual environment, which I think we will, at least in some way, shape, and form, um, we're I think we're gonna collectively as a as a as a group of professionals need to think about what those boundaries look like. Um, but I know for me personally, as a practicing lawyer, as a working mother, the idea that that flexibility enables me to do all of those things better than I could do them before is something I want to embrace and continue to advance. That's awesome, Lindsay. Thanks for sharing. Sam, what are your thoughts on uh, the future of working remotely? And uh, what are you excited about uh, with kind of this new, this new world that we've entered in? Pretty excited about it overall. I something I've been looking forward to for years, uh, just the technology finally caught up to what I wanted to happen. Um, it's great because now we can have a hybrid situation. People can come into the office if they need, people can work from home if they need. There is a lack of synergy by everyone being out of the office. Uh, they don't get to collaborate, they don't get to come up with ideas, bounce ideas off each other. You know, we do have the virtual platforms like Google G Suite or Zoom, but it's missing an element of just having that kind of personal touch to it. People in the office will be able to have that, but at the same time, you know, if somebody wants to work from home, they'll have the luxury to be able to do that as well. So it kind of, I think it'll create more productivity overall because they get the best of both worlds. Moreover, as a business owner or, or a law firm owner, it also gives me the flexibility of saying, you know what, I don't need to have as much real estate anymore. I don't need to have as many offices. I can lower my overhead in that respect, or um, I don't necessarily need to expand as much um, there. The one thing I love about the cloud-based system is, uh, you know, from a law firm perspective or from an attorney perspective, back in the days, if you wanted to go to court, you had to literally lug a whole entire file with you. Go down to court, just in case the judge had a question or something, pull everything out, look for the paperwork, and be able to answer the question the judge has. Now, you go to court, you have your laptop with you, everything is on the cloud, or you have a VPN, you're connected to your office, you literally have access to the whole entire office, including the file that you're working on, right there in court. And you even have more access because you have access to resources such as LexisNexis Lexis or Westlaw. So you can actually obtain more information and work in a court while you're, uh, work, while, while you're in front of the judge. So I, I think it's phenomenal. And I think this is just the beginning of, a, of what to come. Thanks, Sam. I love that. Awesome. Natalie, any thoughts on the future and, and uh, what, what are you excited about as far as working remotely uh, in the virtual world? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of this has been has been covered, but I think um, in particular what uh, Lindsay and Christy were saying is that it's all about efficiency, right? It's about meeting people where they are in their lives and making sure that when you do that, people can accomplish what they need to accomplish and they may not do it um, you know, it, it maybe even between nine and five, if that doesn't really, you know, fit their schedule or whatever, but they do get a lot more done. And so I think it's really all about efficiency. Um, our, my practice is much more of a national practice too. So I'm really excited about this platform because we 
Um, we, you know, now can have, um, you know, a meeting in Atlanta from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. And I can have another meeting in L.A. from, you know, 4 to 6 and, um, and you know, without batting an eye and certainly much, much more cost effectively. So, um, so that's been really fun. I've met a lot of people just networking and that kind of thing um, all over the country. And I think that's been really, really collaborative and neat. Um, so I'm so I'm excited to see that happen. But I think what Christy was saying is let's pull, you know, most law firms out of the dark ages, because I think businesses are way ahead of us in this mentality. I think we sort of did this because we had to. Right. Um, but uh, but I think it's time. It's probably long overdue. And here we are. And, and a year later, I think I think they're surprised, at least in the legal industry, that this is possible. And not only is it possible, it's not all negative. Um, so I think that there will be Zoom options, there will be in-person options, there will be all kinds of things, and um, we found it to be great. I found it personally to be really, really neat to connect with people on a Zoom camera face-to-face, -face, where I think that before the pandemic, my clients would have been like, you want to get on <laughs> what? And why? <laughs> Can't you just call me? But there, there is another <laughs> level of connection, you know, um, mm. with a camera um, that's better, that's not quite as good as in person. But wow, is it really pretty good? And I've, you know, even when this first hit, I made a point to, you know, get on a call with some of my clients that I can't normally see and couldn't see and, you know, just have a conversation about, you know, how are things and how are you handling this and how are you and, you know, is everyone well? So it adds a personal touch to it in addition to mass amounts of efficiency, I think. Love it, Natalie. And you, I really resonated with what you said in regards to being able to connect with people that you weren't being able, that you weren't connecting with before. Mm. Um, and I love, this is kind of a, this is almost a bonus question. I don't think we, we, we discussed this uh, amongst the panel before this event, but I love if anybody has any thoughts on this, because Natalie hinted at it, uh, being able to now serve more clients in new regions that you never were to serve before, that you weren't serving before because you were strictly local or, or strictly regional. Does anybody else want to jump on the idea of, hey, since the pandemic and since we've been able to work remotely or more cloud-based, I'm actually serving more clients now, or I'm going into new markets now because of technology, whereas before I was just regional um, does anybody else, would anybody else want to jump on that question? I, I can tell you, you know, we're, we're, we're based in Los Angeles. Uh, we practice throughout California, but ever since the pandemic, everything has shifted in our abilities. Uh, you know, a lot of clients before they want to sign up and become your, before they want to sign up with us, would want to meet in person, sign a retainer agreement. Right now, they don't even expect, they prefer not to meet you in person. They want to just do it over the phone. Do it on Zoom, and now everyone somehow knows how to use DocuSign or whatever uh, digital platform there is. On the flip side, we have the ability now to do Court Connect or, or do video court calls. Um, I know the federal system had it before, but now the state or local local courthouses are building up a whole video network so that we can just remotely go into court. And that makes a huge difference because before we literally would have to fly around California to make an appearance just at a court for, for, for something that lasts, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Now I can sit on my desk at home or at the office or whatever, maybe click a couple buttons face to face with the judge. And then as soon as my hearing is done, I, I can go back to business as usual right in my office without having to waste my time commuting all over the place. So I think it's fantastic. That's awesome, Sam. Thanks for sharing your experience. Anyone else want to uh, jump on that before we move to the next question? 
Yeah, I would love to. Um, so um, since I, you know, by coastal, I was in Oregon, I moved to North Carolina, and now I serve both. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I was really launching my practice, my solo practice here in North Carolina at the start of the pandemic. And I think a lot of us are, we're all out there trying to drive business, however we do it. Um, and I would say, you know, my plan at the beginning of last year was that I was going to have to attend a million coffees, you know, tons of lunches and do all this stuff to start building these authentic relationships where I could grow my business. And the pandemic has actually made that so much easier because now I can jump on a networking event in North in Raleigh. I can jump on a networking in Portland. And through chat feature, you can connect and walk away with, you know, some one-to-one set up with folks, you know, three or four out of a half hour meeting. Um, and so I think that not only is it easier to do our job and make new clients and stuff, um, but we're also able to make new referral relationships out there too, um, because of this amazing sort of opportunity if we're really looking at, at the positive side of this massive pivot in our businesses. Awesome, Christy. Thanks so much for sharing. Well, we're gonna be moving on to the next set of questions here. We have two more questions um, uh, to focus on. They're all gonna be around cybersecurity. And it's really, we're gonna be focusing on uh, what, are the, what are the current threats that law firms and other businesses have? Um, what are kind of like top, top threats when it comes to cybersecurity? And then what are different uh, security audits and stuff like that that law firms or, um, or you've all seen and uh, really, the kind of the big picture is we've seen an exponential increase in cybercrime um, over the past couple of years. Uh, the pandemic and uh, globalization and moving to the cloud have all um, expedited it, as we've seen. And so we're going to be talking about, hey, what are the kind of the current trends we see from specific uh, breaches, but then also um, compliance and um, how to mitigate uh, those those security risks. So let's talk about the first question is what's one of the greatest security risks for law firms uh, and really just organizations in general? So let's start with uh, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay, if you wouldn't mind kind of talking to us about what do you see as, um, uh, I know you have a, 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 an extensive background in cybersecurity. I'd love to hear about what are some of the top cybersecurity related um, uh, issues you see out there um, and what are some of the best ways to mitigate them? So one of the most obvious things about law firms is that um, law firms are a treasure trove of sensitive and privileged information. Every case we handle attaches privilege and confidentiality to the information that we collect. And then by the very nature of the type of representation, depending on type of law a particular firm practices, we're talking about financial information. We're talking about healthcare and medical treatment information, in addition to all of the things that are privileged and protected that we collect on behalf of our client. Um, we also, because of the very nature of what we do as lawyers, um, we are designed to keep secrets for our clients. For that reason, cyber criminals see law firms as a target, all size law firms, big, small, solos, medium size. Every law firm is going to have access to information that it is critical to protect, and the compromise of that information will drive decision-making on behalf of the firm. So if we look at what the greatest cybersecurity threats out there are, right now, what I tell people is half of my practice is devoted to helping clients respond to ransomware attacks. Half of my practice is devoted to helping clients respond to business email compromise. And the third half is everything else. Because there are the, the two primary risks right now are ransomware and business email compromise. Both of those tend to have their root in um, most typically phishing email scams. So when we think about the increase we've seen in cybercrime, particularly over the last year, 
we we fishing is always a risk and is always something that we should train our personnel to recognize and respond to appropriately. But when you add to it the work from home nature and the way email is being used differently than it was before, those types of risks are elevated. When you consider ransomware in the um, in the law firm setting, my kids kind of laugh about, you know, I'll be on the phone with somebody and they'll ask me jokingly, oh, are you negotiating another ransom? It's a real, real risk. And what those attackers have done, particularly over the course of the last 12 to 18 months, is expand their attack, not just to encrypt environments. So the traditional, if there is such a thing, ransomware attack is malware getting into a network that encrypts everything on the drives, all the files, to prevent operation and to prevent access to information. But over the last 12 to 18 months, these threat actors have really advanced their techniques, and they have started stealing information and using it to extort ransoms. So in addition to locking a system, they threaten to publish or go public with that information as another incentive to get organizations to pay ransoms. The third layer of that, which is just starting to gain more steam, it's been around, but it's starting to get more prevalent, is in addition to, okay, pay me to decrypt your information, pay me so I won't publish it, pay me so I won't call your clients. And they're doing it now. So they'll go through a law firm's records and they'll figure out who your biggest and key clients are. And those threat actors will stop calling them or emailing them and telling them that your law firm has been hit by a cyber attack and your law firm security is not up to par. Um, all of those threats are extremely real for law firms because these threat actors are aware that information and the protection of information is what drives what we do. When you add business email compromise to it, the idea that someone will steal credentials and access email accounts, it, it doesn't take long to recognize that devotion and dedication to good cybersecurity hygiene, good cybersecurity measures, the appropriate programs and protections are critical to our credibility as lawyers and to making sure that we deliver for our clients what we need to. And that is good advice coupled with protection of what they need us to protect for them. Thanks, Lindsay. That's so great. Thanks for elaborating and uh, for sharing your experience there. Um, Natalie, would you like to share this as far as what do you see as kind of some of the com most common uh, cybersecurity uh, threats out there and your thoughts on the best practices to, to handle those? Yeah, sure. So, so thank you, Lindsay. I think that painted a really, a really good picture. Um, I, I think that we've all seen the phishing schemes, and that's a really good um, update. And I think the some of the remedy used to be for some of these phishing schemes was to um, was to just back up, back up, back up, so that your backups are within an hour and you don't need it. But then we're getting into these other more sophisticated schemes that that would not even um, you know even save the the data. So. Um, if it wasn't just encrypted in hell, if it was actually stolen. Um, I think that we see one of the biggest threats is when, you know, there are these silent actors, there are criminals who are in your system and you don't know that they're in the law firm system. We could not know for 180 days. So obviously, um, and, and during this time, they're taking copious notes as to who does what and who has access to what, and they see the data flows all the way through the organization. It can be just tremendously damaging depending on what they decide to do with that information, as Lindsay was saying. So, um, so I think the law firms need to take extra care in, in choosing the right security options for uh, their firm, depending on their size and their resources and everything. And also then working from home, right, has then brought up this whole other layer of, of uh, complications as we've been discussing. And so um, once they do that, I, there's, there's a, 
a software VPN type connection, as I understand it, and then there's the hardware um, VPN connection. So the hardware VPN connection, right, you take any, any computer at home and you are logging right into your server. Well, if your home computer is your kid's gaming computer, let's say it's not secure, you have opened up that unsecure computer to your network. Whereas if there's a software VPN type connection, there's one other layer perhaps where law firms can, can uh, consider this, where it goes through something called something like a log me in or any other company where they actually have the secure tunnel then to the network and then to the computer that's on the network, exactly. So um, I'm sure I'm not explaining it um, super great. I don't think lawyers should be IT people and I don't think IT people should practice <laughs> law, right? But this is my dumbed down version of that and somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But the soft VPN connection does seem to be one of the ways that law firms can sort of mitigate this where they it doesn't matter if the device on the other end at home is all that secure because there's this second layer of, uh, of perhaps protection there. So, um, so that's what we're that's seeing. Great. That's great, Natalie, thanks. Joe, what are your thoughts on, um, yeah, the, the current kind of number one, number two threats and then how to mitigate them? Uh, well, uh, first let me say, Natalie, as a techie guy, you did fantastic, so kudos. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna be the, uh, the oddball in the room and say that the greatest security risk to a law firm or any organization unfortunately, is always going to be the end user, right? Um, you can have policies in place. You can spend thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on security controls. You can lock down your cloud. You can have multi-factor authentication. But user awareness and user indifference is always going to be the biggest threat factor. Um, that leads things to exactly what Lindsay was talking about. Um, the prevalence of phishing um, is only because of, you know, user inexperience or user inattentiveness. Um, or just the fact that the, the attacks are getting way more sophisticated than people's security awareness programs can actually combat. Um, in a former life, we would run, uh, you know, within an organization, uh, one of the organizations I was at, we ran quarterly phishing scam tests, and people failed all the time. It was, it was awful. You know, we would do a scam test, we would do a retrain, and then another scam test, and the same people were failing over and over again. It was really something about the awareness of the user being cognizant that these things exist. And I think Natalie kind of drove the point home when this is really exacerbated by um, work and life becoming part of one single ecosystem, right? Um, and uh, I did computer forensics for over 20 years um, in, in a former life. And I can tell you, anytime we've gotten a business computer, there is 100% without fail personal user data on that. So that's a two-way street, right? People's personal computers have work data on them. People's work computers that companies have spent money on have personal data on them. So this commingling of your different lives in a single source of data is also making that threat pool much larger, right? So if you know I'm Joe and I get a phishing email on my personal email account, but I happen to check it on my business computer, I've just compromised my business computer. So you know these two worlds coming together in kind of a forced way due to the pandemic, um, really should be uh, counteracted with a greater increase in security awareness um, and demystifying it and making it less scary or less boring um, is what I've seen in a lot of cases that some of our customers is security awareness is just boring and they check the box and they do it. No, show these people that this is a real living thing and that not only you need to be concerned about it, but your children who are all gonna be living in a virtual world um, when they get older 
that's going to be their day-to-day lives. So get accustomed to being able to speak to it and being able to be aware of it and being able to, to combat it when needed. So uh, the, the long answer, the, the short answer to the long answer is user, user awareness is really the biggest threat. Thanks, Joe. That's great. And um, I love the, the, on, the, the phishing um, simulation, what you guys do. And we actually do something similar for our clients and for internally where we do weekly uh, phishing simulations where we constantly are testing ourselves on basically think before you click, right? And that's, that's the biggest key of uh, ultimately um, having that culture of being vigilant to think before you click and uh, just being aware of um, that there's just so much possible. There's so many uh, malicious and uh, things don't always appear as they are, right? And so uh, being super focused on that. Uh, Christy, any uh, cybersecurity uh, risk or uh, excuse me, any sort of cybersecurity attacks you've experienced in your organization or different ways you've been proactive to make sure you don't have any um, any tax, Christy, that'd be great. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I was going to say, yeah, definitely the end user is, is the biggest risk. And so a huge um, component of that is, is rolling out a, a strong training program, but again, speaking to sort of the self-interest so that it keeps people engaged and, um, and involved. And, you know, as an aside, I also think that it's super important to, Uh, Make sure that you're fully vetting your vendors as well. Um, So to your question, one event that um, will always and forever stick out in my mind, um, I had a client that was not cloud-based and they just had sort of everything stored on their unencrypted desktop and they in an internal office and the office window had to be replaced. And so the vendors came in, replaced the window, but when they installed the window, they installed it backwards. So the window could be unscrewed from the outside. And that's exactly what happened. And someone did it and just reached in and grabbed the unencrypted, un, you know, unsecure, uh, computer pulled it out and it was a healthcare facility, huge data breach, right? And so, um, you know, I think just just educating people, you know, look around this, like, like Joe said, demystify it. It doesn't, I'm not a tech person, but, you know, living through these experiences is very traumatic. It brings your business to its knees to have to address it. And so the more you can speak to that self-interest, whether it's to the business owner, the higher ups, the employees who, you know, entire job could be jeopardized. I think you start really getting buy-in involved. So always speaking to the person. <laughs> thanks, so, thanks so much, Christy. That's uh, super helpful. And if anybody wants to learn more about vendor management or making sure your vendors, uh, uh, yeah, your, your supply chain, your vendors are, uh, ensuring that they're holding the best practices. Just go look at the recent solar winds breach uh, where there is a supply chain breach and great example, very complex cybersecurity situation um, and not very common maybe for small businesses where you have a supply chain breach, but uh, the Department of Homeland Security got breached, Microsoft got breached, um, quite a few Fortune 500 companies and government agencies got breached uh, due to the fact that one of their vendors had a compromise, right? Or one of their vendors wasn't doing everything they needed to do. Um, so awesome. we got about 10 minutes left here before the top of the hour. I have one more question. I'd love Sam. Sam, if you want to uh, just tell us any uh, cybersecurity breaches 
uh, you witnessed or cyber kind of the number one cybersecurity risk you've seen in your organization um, or just different ways you've mitigated risk? Um, I'll tell you one of, the, one of the biggest breaches we had was we used uh, Microsoft uh, Remote Desktop. This is many, many years ago, and there was actually a bug in the system. And somebody was able to just go through Microsoft Desktop and reach our servers, um, which was a nightmare in and of itself. But fortunately, there was another layer of protection within the server where they weren't able to access any information on the server. Um, so one of the things to be mindful of is whatever technology you're using may not be foolproof at the end of the day. You want to put as many layers as you can um, to protect yourself in that respect. The other thing I want to speak to is, you, know, you kind of spoke about the solar winds is, um, cyber attacks are not necessarily just towards law firms. They're towards big organizations and they're state-sponsored as well. So many of the cloud-based systems that you have may be on Amazon servers, Google servers, whatever it may be. And if those are attacked by some uh, rogue state, you will not have access to that information. And being a law firm, that's the most critical thing. You need to be able to retrieve your files, re retrieve anything, that uh, your client's information, um, even a day of not being able, being able to retrieve these documents can make a world of difference in your practice. So, you know, one thing I'd say is back up, back up, back up. Create uh, barriers as much as you can, but be able to access your information in any single way, whether it's sitting on your server or on a cloud, just be able to have any kind of system in place to be able to retrieve your documents if there is some kind of national cyber attack. Super helpful, Sam. Thanks for sharing. Um, next question, we're going to wrap up the hour on, and the question is really around uh, security processes. So over the past couple of years, uh, organizations like, for example, Netflix came out and said, if you want to be a vendor of Netflix, you have to follow these specific cybersecurity and data management uh, protocol and, and procedures. Um, so let's start with Joe. Joe, what type of cybersecurity uh, audits like SOC 2, ISO, P, PCI, um, any of those processes have you seen? What are kind of the most prevalent ones you've seen of like, hey, here's the main ones we're seeing our clients getting asked to complete? Um, and uh, yeah, and, and how did you help your clients navigate those? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, uh, across my career, I've, I've kind of seen all of them. Um, and, you know, whether it's ISO or SOC or, um, you know, uh, the cybersecurity framework provided by NIST, um, you know, any of the NIST controls, things like that. Um, they all are very comprehensive and they all touch on many of your major security controls. Um, but I think very few of them are actually tailored to the world that we're living in today. You know, the teleworking, um, moving to cloud world. Um, some organizations like ISO and NIST are, are making a push to, you know, have stronger control sets to account for things like the cloud and things like, um, you know, working from home all the time or having a dedicated connection directly into your office. Um, but I think that uh, one of the security processes or audits that really need to start being implemented into all of these uh, audit suites are things like BYOD or using your home network to perform work, right? You don't really audit someone's you know, a uh, Verizon router at their house or their Comcast connection um, or what's going on inside, right? Because most organizations think the boundary ends at, at my parking lot, right? But now our boundaries for our organizations are my house and Natalie's house and your house. Um, and we don't take that into account 
when we perform security audits, right? We audit the person, we audit the organization, but we don't audit anything in between for the most part. So I think there really needs to be a, a focus on auditing the processes that you have in place to make sure that you account for working from home or working from my car or, you know, uh, being a teleworker for six months or, you know, I can't afford computers, so I'm going to have to use my kid's gaming computer. And, you know, what things can I put in place to um, mitigate my risk and lower my, you know, my threat profile? Um, so, like I said, I think that, um, you know, the whole telework BYOD scenario, and I call it BYOD, but th that's the reality, right? People are absolutely using absolutely using their home computers for work purposes. Um, a lot of your kids are going to school online, so you don't have 45 computers at home. So you're sharing computers with other family members and things like that. So um, you just have to be able to account for it and make sure that you're putting um, steps in place to mitigate your risk as much as humanly possible. Love it, Joe. Thanks so much. Sure. Um, Lindsay, uh, would you love to, to jump in on uh, what sort of security audits have you seen as being the most popular um, and how have you helped your clients navigate those, those security audits? So um, I am a HIPAA subspecialist. I spend a lot of time in the HIPAA space assisting healthcare providers, both in responding to breaches and preparing or hoping to prevent, prevent them. So I have um, been hands-on for a number of, of HIPAA security risk assessments. And one of the things that I find about that process is um, a lot of organizations try to do it on their own. And that makes a lot of sense because it can be extremely expensive from a third-party vendor standpoint, but real, the reality is when organizations try to do their own assessments, they're not, they're not abundantly honest with themselves and they need the input from outside experts. Um, and I also find that a lot of organizations, and this is true in any sort of security risk assessment, um, believe that buying an antivirus or an anti-malware program or having computers that have either VPN or multi-factor authentication is enough these organizations aren't actually looking, they aren't watching. And so you can have the best endpoint management system in your environment, but if nobody's watching the screen, um, alerts are gonna get missed and things aren't gonna be seen. And so it's about, it's about educating organizations about actually watching. Are you looking at access controls? Are you auditing who is coming in? Are you reviewing the reports that are generated by the security measures that you've put in place? You can't stop with just the programs. You have to assess and move on to who is looking, who is assessing, and who is responding. And I think particularly in the HIPAA standpoint with healthcare, um, a lot of folks view those HIPAA requirements as check the box requirements instead of understanding that they have to take it a step further. There has to actually be review and analysis and consideration of what they're learning from the steps that they're taking. Um, and so while it's expensive to have third parties come in, I think it's absolutely critical because organizations on their own believe they're much more secure than they actually are. They need input from outside experts, whether it's legal, cybersecurity, compliance experts to take a look and ask the hard questions about, you know, are you using passwords properly? Are you actually reviewing access logs? Are you looking at your audit controls? Do you have someone checking the things that are going in and out of your environment? Um, all of those things are critically important to protect the information that's stored there. Thanks, Lindsay. That's awesome. And I think uh, one thing I really resonate with what you said was kind of the ongoing, uh, what we experience a lot when we talk to law firms or any any type of client before we start working with them is, is that they created a policy a couple of years ago, or they did an assessment a couple of years ago, or they did an audit a couple of years ago, 
but they haven't done the regular maintenance, checking in, updating their policies, doing an annual risk assessment, doing the things to make sure that they're, they're continuing to be compliant uh, and they move forward. Um, awesome. We're about at the top of the hour. Natalie, I'd love for you to fin finish us off um, right. as we wrap up here. Right. So thank you. Some great points. So um, yeah, I, I think that um, I, I've mostly seen this from the HIPAA compliance side um, as well. And, uh, and certainly echo um, what Lindsay was saying. And, and we can devise the most beautiful policies, right? But if they're not really keeping them updated from an IT and a legal standpoint, what good are they? In fact, they might get the company in more trouble than if they had had no policies, perhaps. Um, so I wanted to say something really quick with respect to the question before, and that was that we talked about culture in an organization and we talked about training. One of the things we, we didn't talk about was sort of this culture of tolerance in a law firm environment, particularly, because if there is someone who clicks on something, they must be in a culture where they will not be quiet about it. They will not bury it. They will not whatever. They need to raise their hand and they will only raise their hand if they feel like they will not, in fact, get fired. So um, be that from a secretary or um, a part time bookkeeper or a uh, uh, a lawyer or a partner or whoever, there has to be this sort of overarching um, culture in the organization um, as far as if you click on something, make sure to report it right away because that can really, really save things. Natalie, that's awesome. And I completely relate. I was just talking to a client this morning, a potential client this morning, and they were telling me that they were continuing to receive phishing scams, uh, phishing emails. And, uh, but they're, they're, they're stopped. They started with the owner and some of the employees. Um, but then as those people didn't click on them or, uh, they moved on, they started targeting other employees, um, that they hadn't targeted before. And so what that tells me is, uh, that they, they the scammer was trying a couple people, right. Um, and then they were unsuccessful. So they moved on to somebody else. But if there isn't a culture, like you're saying, Natalie, of communicating across the board, um, the other member of the team might not be as vigilant or aware of that scam and they might click on the link or whatnot. And so super important just to be open, transparent, um, because once again, like Joe's mentioned, other people mentioned the socially engineered attacks are uh, kind of uh, we're the greatest risk to our organization. So, well, everyone, we're at the top of the hour. It's been a rich uh, hour of discussing with all of you panelists. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for all the attendees and everyone participating. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion and I hope it was of great value to everyone. You will be receiving a link to the recording in the next couple of days. Uh, thanks again for everyone for taking the time. Uh, be well, be safe, uh, and take care. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Best Tech Practices for Small Organizations podcast presented by NW Techs. To learn more about NW Techs and how we help small organizations tackle IT and cybersecurity challenges, visit us at nwtechs.com.